All right. We're back in Revelation chapter 11 this morning. So we're finishing up a section that's rather tricky. We started this section last week. And um, the reason it's tricky is that it's just full of like kind of rapid fire imagery that's just comes at you so quick one after another it's it's hard to figure out what they all mean and so there's a certain level of conjecture so just like last week the way I'm approaching it is the things I'm not sure about I'm going to just kind of barely put my weight on and go eh, maybe this right uh, it's it's interesting and we can con, you know try to guess and do our best but I'm not going to put my full weight on it um, and then the other parts that I'm really sure about, I'm going to hit pretty hard, all right? So if it seems like I'm moving quickly over certain parts, that's, that's totally on purpose, okay? Um, it's because I'm just sort of doing my best, all right? And that's all we can do. Um, so starting in verse 1, this is chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. We'll start there. Um, by the way, just to kind of review from last week, um, we looked at Daniel chapter 12, which is sort of a, I don't know if you call it a parallel verse. It's almost an illusion, you know, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, not illusion like a magician, right? Um, Revelation is alluding to Daniel chapter 12, and if you read, go back and read chapter 12, you'll see, we looked at it last week, but you'll see this, they're almost the same exact vision, okay? There's a couple of details that are different, but primarily it's just the same thing, okay, which so chapter, Daniel 12 helps us understand chapter 11. Um, and in that vision, we have Jesus hovering over the water or with his feet on dry land and on the water, depending on whether it's Daniel 12 or Revelation 11. And then on either side, you have two witnesses, right? And last week, we saw Jesus give us or John a scroll and tell him to eat it. We talked about eating the word. And now we're going to look at these two witnesses and what those two people are about, okay, what that means. All right, verse 1, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth stop there for just a minute we'll take this in pieces so let's deal with the numbers first because those are the ones that people always want to know about because i think in our kind of modern western mentality we all we have a hard time thinking of numbers as symbols so if you that's why i don't like math is it's very like literal and there's no symbolism but happily in revelation the numbers mean other things. Woohoo! I've always wanted, wanted my math teacher to say, but never would, right? <laughs> Can't we just sort of, you know, philosophize on the numbers? Well, now's your chance if you're like me, all right? Because these numbers are symbolic of something, all right? First of all, 42 months is the same as three and a half years for those of you who aren't good with math, all right? 1,260 days is also three and a half years. This is the same period of time indicated in Daniel 12, interestingly enough. Also there in Daniel 12, there's uh, another designation of three and a half years, which was time, times, and half a time, also three and a half years. All right, so this three and a half years thing is important. 
So the question is, what does it symbolize? The time designation is used all over apocalyptic literature in the Old and New Testament. I think it refers to this period we live in right now between Jesus' first coming and his future second coming. Uh, the church age, we could call that, between the first and second coming of Christ. Another good possibility is that it refers to the short period of, a short period of increased opposition and persecution that will happen right before the end, um, right before Jesus returns, because there is an escalation. I mean, I think you can see that just looking around you. The, the persecution, the judgment that we see in the world, the difficulty, the trials, all of that's slowly ramping up over time. And so that also might be what that means. You're like, can't you be more definitive? No. The number 42 might also be a nod, I like this, a nod to the fact that the Israelites actually had 42 encampments in the desert. Remember when they were going from Egypt to the promised land in the desert, there were 42 camps they made along the way. This might be a nod to that, an allusion to the fact that we also are like them in the desert wandering. We don't belong here. We're heading to our future home, which is heaven, when Jesus returns, which is a theme of Revelation, obviously, right? And so that might be a nod to that. I'm pretty comfortable with that. So what about the temple? That's a little easier to apply. What's this measuring the temple business, all right? So if you've been taught this before, I don't know how many of you have, <laughs> but if you've been taught this or listened to tapes or something on the radio or whatever about this scripture about measuring the temple, I can guess pretty well what you were taught about it, and I'm going to completely disagree with it, all right? Um, you've probably been taught that this is a literal temple that will be restored by Israel during a literal three-and-a-half-year period in the future. And then there will be a violent persecution that will end worship that's happening in that literal physical temple. And the worshipers in the temple are believing Jews, and those in the outer courts are Gentiles that are persecuting them, right? You've maybe heard that. That's a, what we call, we call a dispensational futurist perspective, all right? Others might say the same thing, but they'll at least admit that the temple here is figurative and not literal, Okay? They're saying it's a figurative kind of metaphor for the church, but it's set in all this is going to happen in the future, in a literal three and a half years. Um, others will say that this is a prophecy about the destruction of the temple, which happened in A.D. 70, which is called the Preterist View. I know we have at least one cotton here who's a Preterist. Um, we'll just leave it there. <laughs> So, whichever one you take, it's fine. I really don't like the first one, dispensational one. That one I might argue with you about. The rest I won't argue with you. I'm convinced that the time period, as I mentioned, is not the future, but it's now, that three and a half years we're living in right now, but refers to the time between Advents. The temple is the church. That's for sure, right? When this happens, you know, we can argue about and disagree on it. It's a moot point. It's going to happen when it happens, right? But the temple is certainly, for sure, not a literal physical temple. It is the church. And to believe otherwise, to be honest with you, I at least flirts with blasphemy. I don't know if I'm going to call it 
outright blasphemy, but I'm quite tempted, all right? Why? Look at Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. This is just one example of why that can't be true. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's talking to us, the church. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place, same word for temple, by God the Spirit. And then I have much more verses there if you don't believe it. The church is a temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the word you there is, in the south we would say y'all. Or you all. Or you guys. Or you guys. Right? It's the collective you, not the individual you. We have a problem, cultural problem in the modern day West when we read scripture. We tend to read it individualistically. Right? We read it for me. It's my personal relationship with Christ. You never see that phrase in Scripture. Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. He is that, but it's, Scripture almost always is written to y'all, us, we, together, congregation, the body of Christ. You, by yourself, are not the temple of the Holy Spirit. Does that feel a little sad to you? That's not what he says. He says, you all together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells among you. It doesn't mean you don't have the Holy Spirit in your heart or anything. It just means that you together are the temple. You are not the entire temple by yourself. You are a stone in the wall of the temple. You are another rock, a living stone, as Peter would call it. Revelation 11 is not calling for a restoration of the physical temple, so that believing Jews can go back to making sacrifices for sins. It is not what he's saying. Why would any believer blaspheme the cross that way? There, I called it blasphemy. I, wasn't, I did. I put it out there, all right? Instead, Revelation 11 is referring to the church. Remember when Jesus died on the cross? He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And his life went out of him. What happened? First thing that happened was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, there's this thick curtain, a veil, and by no work of any man's hand, it was ripped in half, symbolizing that God had left the building. And he had, the world had become his altar, his throne. And now he had left the building and he was sending the church out to bring his presence by the Holy Spirit, which came at Pentecost, out into the world. Why? Just so they could have cool meetings. No. It was so that his presence, the Holy of Holies, which is us, would get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger across the whole world and fill the cosmos, fill his creation with his presence. The Holy of Holies didn't go away. It just got a lot bigger, right? And that's what we're doing is we're making the Holy of Holies bigger and bigger and bigger. We've brought the Holy of Holies to Kernersville, and we're taking it beyond, right? So the very idea that, we would, that someone with God's blessing would build a physical temple and go back pre-escape and try to put the genie back in the bottle, put God back in the, in the box, 
and then worship him there and call that legitimate is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. If anyone ever does it, God will not be pleased with it. They might rebuild the temple. I don't know. I remember I've been to Westminster Abbey a couple of times. It's a really beautiful place. You walk in, you have to remove your hat. I got in trouble one time for not removing my hat. And you go and you tour around, and it's this beautiful church. It's a beautiful building with all sorts of imagery and symbolism. It's a fun place to tour. But God doesn't live there, as beautiful as it is. It is a memorial. It's a museum. And it's cool. But God's not there. Now, when a Christian walks in there, God is there. Right? Because he's in you. The Holy Spirit's in you. And if we had a church service there and we all went there and worshiped God there, God would be there. But when all the Christians leave, he's not hanging. Even in Westminster Abbey, the most beautiful, amazing cathedral in the world. So what's this measuring thing about? Why are they measuring the temple? Measuring in the Old Testament is a very common symbol of God's merciful protection from judgment. You can see this in several places. I'll give you a list of scriptures in the notes. To be measured is to be held secure by God, protected from harm, even from his own wrath. You see that, like, if God is measuring you, he's paying attention to you, and he's expressing ownership over it. It's like walking your property and saying, this is mine. I'm, I'm counting it, and I'm measuring it. It's like going through, you know, doing inventory of all the things that you own and saying, I'm taking care and stewarding these things. I'm measuring it. That's what that means. So God is measuring the church, right? Does that make sense to you? The temple is the church. God is calling us or is himself measuring the church, meaning he is taking ownership and stewardship and care and protecting it even from his own judgment. And then we have this, this part of the picture of the temple outside in the outer courts. We have people trampling the world, trampling around disrespectfully in the outer courts. I think that's a picture of what the world does and how the world unbelievers will respond to the presence of God coming into their territory. As they trample around like it's nothing. And so the church is out there in the world saying, hey, look how great God is. Bringing his presence, his holy presence out into the world. And people who don't believe are just trampling around like it's not holy. This image would have been so offensive to those who originally heard it, it's hard to get it across. The idea of unbelieving Gentiles trampling around disrespectfully, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the temple would have been like un unthinkable. And this is how God sees it. He's not happy about it. All right, let's move on to the two witnesses. Verses 4 through 6. These are the two olive trees. He's talking about the two witnesses. And the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. 
They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. This is superhero stuff. So these two witnesses are associated with two trees and two lampstands. I think that's pretty strong evidence that these are not two literal people we're looking for. These are symbols. Okay? It's another thing. If, you, if you're going with the literal temple thing, you're going to go with two literal prophets that we're looking for to come and do these exact things. I don't think that's what this is about. He says here, these are, <laughs> these two witnesses are two olive trees and two lampstands. Unless you're looking for two people that morph Right, magically from trees to lampstands and then back to people. Unless you're looking for that, I don't think these are literal people. These are symbolic, right? But you shouldn't be surprised by that. That's how I'm interpreting the book. It's a strong hint that they are not two literal people, but they represent the church in some way. Remember back to Revelation 1 and 2, the lampstands? That was an obvious symbol of these individual churches that one's really easy right so if the two witnesses are also lampstands yada 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 vis-a-vis therefore therefore these represent the church all right they represent the prophetic witness of the church if you look at the things he says about them the fire coming out of their mouth the water turning to blood all of that those are all old testament markers of prophets things that prophets did in the old testament Specifically, the two big ones, Elijah and Moses. He says, if you bring harm to them, uh, I will bring judgment, means specifically death. Um, they stop the rain, like Elijah did. Water turning to blood and plagues is a reference to Moses in Egypt. It's making it very clear, I think, that these are prophetic witnesses, not just witnesses standing there doing nothing, but they are prophesying like Moses and Elijah. I don't think they are literally Moses and Elijah. Some would say that. I think they just represent what Moses and Elijah represented. Okay? John 1, 6-9 says that John the Baptist, about John the Baptist, remember this? That he was not the light, but he came to be a witness about the light, being Jesus. So John's job as a, the, the last Old Testament-style prophet was to stand there and just point. Well, first he stood there and said, Messiah's coming. He's coming, he's coming. Like, not in the future. He's coming like now, right? And then he stood there when Jesus walks up and he says, and here he is, right? There he is, everybody. I told you he was coming, and here he is. And Jesus basically walks right on by, gets baptized, and moves right on past John the Baptist. John the Baptist fades away, and Jesus picks up where he left off. It was John's job, the reason he was born, the reason he existed, the reason God made him who he was and put him on the earth. When he put him on the earth was to do one simple, singular thing, and that was to point at and acknowledge the Messiah and say, there he is. That's it. Remember Simeon? Luke chapter 2, Jesus is a little baby. His parents bring him to the temple to present him to God, dedicate him to God. He's a little infant. And Simeon, old man Simeon, God had told him as a young man that he would just he would see the Lord. And he had been he was old. He was waiting 
His death was waiting for him to see the Messiah. That was his only job. See, when you have one job, hang out in the temple every day, hoping that the Messiah will come that day and you can just see him and then die. And finally, here comes Joseph and Mary with a baby, and he sees them and he says, Ah, there he is. He just knows. That's the Messiah, that little baby. No one had to tell him. He said, There he is. He acknowledged him. He blessed Jesus, he prayed for him, and then he goes off and dies. He says, I can die a happy man. It was his one reason for existing. Can you imagine? Nobody even, I mean, at least he got mentioned in Scripture. No big ministry. No books written. No sermons preached. No notoriety. One job. John pointed at Jesus and said, that's the Messiah. There are two witnesses here probably because the law said that you must have two corroborating witnesses to convict someone of a crime. One's not enough. You have to have two people saying the same thing. So our mission is not to save people. Did you know that? It's not your mission. You can't, which is nice. It's convenient that it's not your mission to do something you can't do because you cannot save people. But we all try, don't we? And we get into this kind of mode of, I have to save this person, or I have to, I have to say the right thing, or do the right thing, I have to figure out, to crack the code of this person's soul, and somehow reach into their hard heart and change it so that they will believe. We really do this with our kids. That's the hardest one. When you finally realize your children are human, and you have a hard heart, it's not just against you, but against God, and only God can soften it. And you think, man, if they just obey the rules, they'll, they'll get saved. No, they won't. They might just become Pharisees. It's a horrible and wonderful realization all at the same time that you cannot save them. But God can. So our job is not to save people, it's to bear witness. Just like John, just like Simeon, just like so many, just like every other prophet was either bearing witness before Jesus came, saying, here he comes, right? Or bearing witness after, saying, there he was and still is. He has something to say, right? That's our job. So bear witness to the risen Christ to be a prophetic witness to the world. Now, it sounds great until you read the rest of these verses. And then it gets bad, and then it gets better again, all right? Look at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast, remember the beast from a couple weeks ago that came up out of the hole in the ground, the dust and the smoke, the beast is Satan, right? Same guy. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. I love that it says symbolically, so we're all clear, right? Where their Lord was crucified for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. We've seen that phrase before, those who dwell on the earth is a, Revelation phrase for unbelievers, okay? So these people do their 
accomplish the mission. They bear witness about Jesus, the one floating in white with the scroll. And for their hard work and effort, the people rebel against them, conquer them, kill them, and then leave their dead bodies in the street, refuse to honor them with a burial, and then have a party over their dead bodies, and even exchange gifts. Now, this isn't so hard to read if you believe that these are just two literal witnesses in the future, and it'll be bad for those two. <laughs> but the rest of us are fine. But I don't think that's what this is saying. This is the church. This is what we can expect to happen when we testify or bear witness as prophetic witnesses to the world about the risen Christ. We can expect there to be conflict and resistance, even persecution. The prophets witness and the people kill them for it. In some ways, that is a summary of the Old Testament. <laughs> the prophets witness, the people kill them for it, or at least try. So the church is called to be a prophetic witness to the world. This is not witness in the evangelism sense that we typically kind of think of it, at least not that narrowly. Witness here is more like bear witness. We bear witness like Simeon in the temple. We bear witness like John. We bear witness like the apostles after Jesus ascended. What did they go out and do? Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Go therefore into all the world. You will be my witnesses when my spirit comes upon you. It's the Great Commission. He doesn't say go out, go therefore into all the world and build impressive ministries. That's not what he says. He says, go be my witnesses, bear witness. Just point at Jesus and say, look, the Messiah, that's your job. And what are they going to do? Some will like it, some will hear and repent, and some will try to kill you. There will be conflict. We tell the world to repent for the kingdom is at hand. We tell the world that they are objects of God's wrath, but they don't need to be. We can expect conflict because we do this in the middle of it. We do this knowing that it will actually invite conflict. The gospel is a funny thing. The gospel is just good news. And when you say it, when it's made known to people, it always gets a reaction. And it's only one of two reactions. Either a hardened heart against it and against God or a softened heart. Does one of those two things every single time. It never does nothing, ever. And every time you represent Jesus, even if it's not with words from your mouth. So in other words, every time you do anything or say anything or act any sort of way, you bear witness about Christ, it is going to produce a reaction every time. Your life produces a reaction and it will not always be positive. Christians are called to live in the middle of conflict, direct, personal conflict. Not general, like we feel sometimes like being a Christian is not generally popular. But we should expect personal, direct conflict simply because you are bearing witness about Jesus. And we should expect that it's quite possible that they would even kill us for it. 
And I know when I say that, I've said that a couple times in this sermon series because it happens a few times. And you go, oh, we live in America, man. The likelihood of you living in America, living and dying in America, of you being directly, you know, persecuted like this or killed for being a Christian is, is very small. But I just want to, conf- you know, confront, challenge you with this idea that it's here not just because, just in case you get killed, because you don't have a choice over that. It's to show us this, how high the stakes are. You have to settle this issue that your life doesn't belong to you. Like nothing you do belongs to you, including who likes you and who doesn't. You don't get to own that. And if you're a Christian, you should expect that your life, all of it, even maybe your actual breath, does not even belong to you. That the manner of your death, you may not grow old. You may not become a 60-year-old. You may not make it there. Because God will take your life one way or the other. That doesn't belong to you. Your life, doesn't, you don't own it. And so doing things in order to preserve your life, make it longer or make it easier, is fruitless. You lay your life down just to be a witness, whatever the cost. Even if it means you lose your family, your friends, your reputation, your happiness, your money, your comfort, your safety, your home, your job, your retirement, whatever it is. The stakes are that high. Because God has no problem. You ever notice like, how casually these things are said in the Bible? People dying for their faith. Just, just words on the page. It just happens. So though the threat of death may seem like a far-off reality, The fact that it is possible shows us what's at stake and what level of commitment God actually requires of us. There's every indication here that the persecution of the church in direct opposition to her prophetic witness will only increase as we draw ever closer to his return. So in that sense, we actually rejoice, in my opinion. As opposition increases, we should rejoice because what does that mean? That means he's closer He's coming. He's almost here. Bring it on. So we rejoice and we dance and we sing as the persecution increases because it only means that Christ is closer than ever before. Ease and comfort and safety are not good signs for the church. They are perhaps the most dangerous thing we can have because it satiates us with comfort, and we think everything's fine. I must, God must be pleased with me because all my bills are paid and no one ever opposes me and I can pray in public and pray in schools and I can have my Bible on my desk at work and people are uncomfortable, but they get over it because we live in America and we sort of feel like everything's fine and it's one of the most dangerous places a church can be. Look at verse 9 to 13. It gets better. By the way, notice the shift from three and a half years to three and a half days. I think, my opinion, 
That's an allusion to Jesus' Jesus' death. He was dead for three days and his resurrection. It's my opinion. We die with Christ. We raise with Christ because that's what happens next. All right? Verse 9. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. We've already read that. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. I love it. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is a beautiful picture, I think, of the end when Jesus returns. It's like, what's your body? What's death? For, like you got, that's what you're worried about? You're worried about somebody taking your life or not having control of it? We will all be raised again, every last one of us. That's great hope for those who you love, who are in Christ, that you have died and you miss. But it's also really great hope for us who are still living and you're, those of us who are afraid to take risks because what's your life? We're all going to end up in the same place. He will breathe life into you again. And so Jesus says in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's that? That's God. Why are we so afraid of conflict? I feel like we really are. Both conflict and being misunderstood. In my humble observation, the American church is we feel like the worst thing that can happen to us is to be misrepresented. And we're constantly saying to the world, but wait, we don't actually think that. We're actually really nice people. Please believe us. We're actually not that bad. I'm not a bigot. I promise. And we're constantly like trying to trying to defend ourselves, thinking that that will fix it, and that the problem is that we're being misunderstood, and if the world could just understand us, then they would all just believe and come flooding into the church, or at least leave us alone. And it is absolutely not what God says is going to happen. You will be opposed. You will be misunderstood. You will be the gospel is going to be misunderstood and it's going to be misrepresented and it's going to be rebelled against and it's only God who will deal with it. It is not our job to constantly go around correcting everybody's misunderstandings. It's our job to do one thing and that is to bear witness about the risen Christ. People misunderstood John the Baptist like crazy. I mean, you, we probably would. He looked like a crazy person wearing camel hair and eating bugs. That guy's not doing the conference circuit. <laughs> he's, he's on the back page of Charisma magazine. <laughs> All our job is to do is to bear witness. And if they reject it 
or reject us, then we're just another way for us to identify with Christ. I think this is wonderfully simple. Difficult, but very simple. We so overcomplicate the idea of witnessing that even when I say the word, we imagine a very narrow thing of like maybe going door to door with tracks and handing them out or this kind of more out extroverted kind of method of evangelism, which is not a bad thing. But the idea of my life is to be spent like Simeon, like John the Baptist, simply pointing and bearing witness. He's real. He's risen. He's the Christ. He's the one. He's the answer. He's the point. He's why we exist. He's why you live. It's why you're breathing. It's why he made you. He made you to worship him and be with him. That's what he, there he is. There he is again. There he is again. He's in my life all over the place. And just bearing witness, not convincing or arguing or trying to placate people's objections or to meet people halfway. None of that. Just bear witness. And watch as the world freaks out as some come in and some hate you for it. Why are we so afraid of losing? What are we so afraid of losing? The church is not in the business of nation building or even ministry building. We're just bearing witness. Now, I should say conflict for no reason is foolish. Conflict because you're a jerk is foolish, all right? We saw that back in the first, seven, the first couple of chapters. One of the rebukes was people who are just offensive and people are offended with them and they get, they get rebuked by Jesus. So know the difference <laughs> between bearing witness and being a jerk, all right? If you're a jerk, stop it. That's not how Jesus is, all right? Conflict because of the gospel is worthy of honor. So, a couple of questions, thought-provoking, possibly thought-provoking questions. What are you bearing witness to with your life? If you were to look at your life, think of it like a witness. If we were to take the idea that two witnesses are required in a legal sense, if you're in court and you're bearing witness, your life is bearing witness about something, what does it bear witness to? Does it bear witness to your own ingenuity? And strength, does it bear witness to your ability to make money and build nice things or buy nice things? Does it bear witness to a selfish life lived in constant exertion of energy to preserve your life and make it longer and happier and more comfortable, more entertained? Or is it a life spent, laid down at the altar, willing to even die simply to bear witness for another day to the risen Jesus? Or does your fear of conflict with the world or simply being misunderstood or misrepresented overpower your fear of God? As Jesus said, why do you fear people who can only kill you? <laughs> That's easy. You know how easy it is for a human being to die? I mean, think about it sometime. It's a good thing to think about. It's easy. It takes almost nothing. Some little thing you can't even see can kill you. Breathing the wrong air 
eating the wrong thing, getting in the wrong car with the wrong driver, right? It's, it's easy. Why are you so afraid, he says. Is your fear of God too small? So I think we should repent of putting our fear in the wrong place and ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with faith to see and believe that Jesus actually is risen and he actually is coming again. There is something about that simple revelation that emboldens you to bear witness. It's so important. We don't talk about it enough. I know we've, we've been in the book of Revelation for like, what, 15 weeks? It's been the topic of conversation for 15 weeks. He's coming again, but still we need to talk about it more and think about it more. If he came today, I want to bear witness today, another day, at any cost. So I want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to do that for us, to take these words off the page and put them in our heart. But I want to start just by repenting of being afraid of the wrong things, putting my energy into preserving my life more than I put it into bearing witness. Amen. And then we'll ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Sound good? So why don't we stand up and do that?